here for our kids. We say it every week. We want them to know what heaven sounds like every day that they wake up, and it sounds a lot like that. Come on, God is cheering them on towards their destiny and their future. So, so Josiah Lyons, I don't know if he's ever thought about being an author, but he's got his book title already, right? God's Ground and Pound. Isn't that a great? That's a good book title, huh? All the MMA fans out there under God's Ground and Pound. We've all been there before, right? That's good. We're tapping out. I've had enough. I've had enough. Hey, we wanted to just encourage you too. you know, Vanessa mentioned about us being a renter here, and we're, we're just excited about being a part of what this campus represents. It's a, it's a multi-church campus if you're, if you're visiting with us tonight, and there's about, I don't know, about seven or ten different churches or ministries that share this facility together, and that's important to us. It's interesting, you know, we didn't really have a vision for that when we first came here in, in 2008, whether or not this is going to be a long-term home or not, we're going to carry that vision forward with us wherever we go, that it's just we, we just feel personally, it's just it, that it breaks God's heart that buildings sit empty so often during the week, and it just doesn't have to be that way. So, so we like the idea that it's a little bit crowded here, and some of you experienced that last week, right? There was a, a youth conference here, and some of you got accosted with prayer. If you've ever been accosted, some of you are laughing, right? So we appreciate your grace towards those young people as they're learning some, some social boundaries, and that's part of that conference experience, but they were just a little bit excited, and so we just, we are, and, but you know what, that's part of sharing space, is you have to be willing to pay that price, and for us, that's a price that we're willing to pay to be kingdom-minded. And we feel like God just smiles upon that. So we, we like that people are in here before us. We leave. People are coming in here behind us. And this is a busy place during the week. And we just really believe that that makes God smile. So, all right. So let me, just to get us thinking in the right direction, I want to I share this with you. It says, in, uh, in Oxford, England, a 25-year-old medical student named Roger Bannister, speaking of medical students, I didn't think about this, where's Sheree? Sheree is here. Come on. You can clap for Sheree. He's in medical school in India, and uh, he's just finished up his first year. He's got four more to go, uh, but he's just been a, a cherished part of this church. And so we were, uh, it, uh, we were not excited to, to see him go, but we were excited for the work that God's doing in his life to prepare him. He's going to use that medical training for missions work overseas and throughout his life. And so uh, it's, it's good to have you here with us. We get him for two Saturdays, and then we got to send him back. So make sure you give him a, a big hug. So stuff some cash in his pocket if you have some extra. The starving medical student. All right, 25-year-old medical student Roger Bannister cracks track and fields most notorious barrier, the four-minute mile. Bannister, who was running for the Amateur Athletic Association against his alma mater, Oxford University, won the mile race with a time of three minutes and 59.4 seconds. For years, so many athletes had tried and failed to run a mile in less than four minutes that people made it out to be a physical impossibility. The world record for a mile was four minutes and 1.3 seconds by Gundahag, right? The name like Gunda should be able to run fast. Gunda, put down that sword, right? He was from Sweden. 1945, he sets that record. Perhaps because of the psychological mystique surrounding the four-minute barrier, several runners in the early 1950s, they dedicated themselves to being the first to cross the three-minute zone. 
Roger Bannister was born in Harrow, England in 1929 and was a top-mile runner while a student at the University of Oxford and at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. And in 1951 and in 1953, he won British championships in the mile run. And as he prepared himself for his first competitive race of the 1954 season, Bannister researched the mechanics of running and trained using new scientific methods that he himself developed. And on May 6th of 1954, he came to Eifley Road Track in Oxford for the annual match between the Amateur Athletic Association and Oxford University. Conditions were far from ideal. It had been windy and raining. A considerable crosswind was blowing across the track as the mile race was set to begin. At 6 p.m., the starting gun was fired. In a carefully planned race, Bannister was aided by Chris Brasher, a former Cambridge runner who acted as a pacemaker. For the first half mile, Brasher led the field with Bannister close behind, and then another runner took up the lead and reached the three-quarter mile mark in three minutes and .4 seconds with Bannister at three minutes and .7. Bannister took the lead with about 350 yards to go and passed an unofficial timekeeper at the 1500 meter mark in three minutes and 43 seconds, thus equaling the world's record for that distance also. Thereafter, Bannister threw in all his reserves and broke the tape in three minutes and 59.4 seconds. He was the first human being in recorded history to ever run that distance in less than four minutes. As soon as the first part of his score was announced, three minutes, the crowd erupted in pandemonium. Can you imagine being there on that day? Seeing history, all the people that had come so close, but never breaking the four-minute barrier. Because so many people, as the story reads, thought that it was just absolutely impossible. And once you just set your mind to saying it can just never happen, you've already lost half the battle. And so we've been in this series, and kind of each week we're kind of picking up an impossible story to share. We launched the series, right, talking about Dean Karnazes, who is the marathon man, and how he, at one point in his life, ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days in 50 different states. And we all hear that, and we say, how is that possible? And so we're digging around this question together as a church. What does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in our modern-day world? And the answer that we're giving is simply this. It means that we have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. That we are not going to be a people. It's part of what Stephanie, come on, that word that she brought forward for us in worship that God just dropped in her heart. This side. We're not going to be a church that shrinks back. We're going to be a church that presses forward because we have an unshakable belief that he can still do things in our lives. That maybe we ourselves at times past or maybe other people saying to us, that could never happen. Come on, that's when God does his best work. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. That's an anchor verse for us here at the City Life Church. The, the church where we rent office space over at North Riverside Baptist Church over behind CNU, they're doing vacation Bible school. Anybody grew up? I grew up doing vacation Bible school. So, so they're doing, I'm thinking about when I was a kid and going to vacation by all the things that I learned and the Bible stories. And, and their verse, their theme verse for the entire week is Mark 10, 27. How great is that? They've been rummaging around my office when I'm not there. I know that they did. Right? 
You know, they're Pentecostal and they don't even know it. A Baptist church over there. They don't even know it. Mark 10, 27. We, we want you to understand this verse. We want you to be familiar with this verse. Maybe you've never memorized a verse of Scripture in your entire life. We're not going to ask you to raise your hand. If you've never memorized a verse, come on, make it a goal that this summer you're going to memorize this one. That you're going to know what this verse says because it has something that it wants to speak to you about what God wants you to believe about Him. That He still does impossible things in this world. So in this series, we've been digging around at what we are calling the Ten Impossibilities, which are the, all the hallmarks, the characteristics of the very first Pentecostal church, the very first church. We call it that because it was birthed during the Feast of Pentecost, which happened, Penta means 50. It was the feast that happened 50 days after Passover. And so that's when the church was born. We explained all of that symbolism in our first uh, sermon in this series. You can get that on the podcast. But as you read through Acts 2, 41 through 47, it gives us this list of Ten Impossibilities possibilities. And so we've been working through these and we're going to keep going in it until we can get through this list, at least through the summer, maybe a little bit into September. But we're going to talk tonight about impossible worship. We've already tasted of impossible worship. Have we not already tonight? Was that worship set not just over the top, over the top? There's an experience of worship that we believe as a church that we're supposed to share with this region. Not that other churches don't have an experience with worship. Not that other churches aren't able to experience what we experience. We, we know that they are. But we know that's, an, that's just supposed to be a, a, just an essential part of who we are as a congregation. We want to be a congregation that champions all of these. But every church just has some things that God kind of highlights and says, this is going to be a definer of who you are. And since the church planted in 2006, those kinds of worship services that are expressive and, and impassioned, that, that they've been a part of who we are, and they're going to continue to be a part of who we are. And we're going to talk about that this week, maybe the next couple of weeks. We'll see just how the Holy Spirit leads us in, 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 these, in these messages. We're going to dig into tonight's message a little bit. But, but how we're going to dig in it tonight is why so many people don't experience the worship that God invites us into. There's all different ways that we can come at this idea of impossible worship. So we're going to start there. That, that, that what keeps people from coming into a room like this when it's happening just like it was tonight, but they don't leave with the same God ground and pound experience that the rest of us did. Come on. All right, so we like to do some giveaways here at the City Life Church. So just to get you thinking along the right direction to set up our text. Hey, look, can we do an extra giveaway tonight? Let's do that. This is for Cord Walls. Where's Cord? Come on. So Cord got the call at the last minute. Say, so you don't know. I know things, right? People tell me things. Come on. Some, for some of you, that's good. For some of you, it's bad. Some people just went like this, right? Don't look at the teacher. So Emily Lee cooking pancakes this morning for her. Her husband, right, burned her hand. Second, second degree burns? Is she, is she in here? You'll recognize her because she's walking around with this huge, like she's like a goalkeeper for Olympic soccer. You ever seen those gloves they wear, right? I could stop a ball if I had gloves like that on. I'm just saying. Just saying. So she's got like her goal people. Go, there she is right there. So she burned her hand this morning. I know. I know. She's really into making pancakes. And so, 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 so she couldn't come. Tyler couldn't be here. And so we have such an, an amazing church. Cord's just getting back from camp. So 
They call him up. We, we need your help. Come on, he's here even before they're finished telling him what he needs to be here for. He's supposed to be training people on the tech. He comes. Tyler walks him through, setting up the sound over the phone. See, all of that was happening while you guys were still taking a nap earlier today. <laughs> Falling asleep in front of the archery competition at the Olympics. So we're just saying thank you for just being who you are, Cord, for being faithful. Come on. It's good. All right, the rest of you, you come on, you, you, you got to earn this. So the first three questions I'm going to ask, they're just for bragging rights. And then the third one, we're just going to let the youth, right, let the youth answer the third one for the $10 iTunes gift card. So the first three, they're just for bragging rights. You ready? So you have to tell me who, who said this, or, or better yet, what classic novel is this, will you find this statement in? I'm going to test my thespian skills here, right? That's a, that's a tricky word, isn't it? Because you don't want to get that one mixed up, right? There's lots of words like that, like prostrate and prostate. Don't get those two mixed up. How was your church service? It was great. People were just laid prostrate all over the place. Okay, well, I'm not sure I want to go to that church, right? Flatulate and flagellate. Don't get those two mixed up. Those are troublesome words. There's all kinds of troublesome words in the English language. Okay, that, that was just for free. That was, that was unplanned, unplanned. All right, here it is. You ready? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Bragging rights. Tale of Two Cities. Somebody else who, who wrote, Saber, you can't answer any of these because you're an English teacher. Come on, that's cheating. Who, who wrote that one, Jen? Charles Dickens. Come on, I know, that's good. You can clap, even though they're not getting something. They're getting bragging rights. Showing off a little. All right, you ready? Here's the next one. What's in a name? I should have been in theater, right? That which we call a rose by... Any other name would smell as sweet. Stan. Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. You, you all are a well-read congregation. Okay. All right. Here's the, this, is, this is my favorite. You ready? It's alive. It's alive. Who knows that one? Yes, sir. Right there on the front. Frankenstein. Nice. Who wrote it? Mary Shelley. You guys are rocking. Come on. That's good. I know some of you stuffy Christians, well, I'm a Christian, I don't watch Frankenstein, so you should. It's a classic. It's a classic. All right, here we go. This is just for the youth for $10, $10 gift card. Juice, you can help me out. You can, you, why don't you pop up and you can see whose hand comes up first. How about that? All right. So that way I put that on him. You see how I did that? Take notes. You take notes, so that won't be my fault. This controversy stays within the world of student ministries. All right. All right, here it comes. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. What book is that from? The Bible. Yes, it is from the Bible. And do you know what book in the Bible it's from? It's not from Genesis, but that's a good guy. Somebody else, that's a book in the Bible. Come on, you guys just got back from camp. They didn't use that one? I don't know what kind of camp we're sending our kids to. Anybody? Anybody? What's that? John. Those are usually two good guesses. All right, we're, we're going to go to the adults. Elena. It's from Ecclesiastes. Nice. All right, $10 gift card. $10. Didn't you just get back from a missions trip also? All right, she just got back today from a missions trip, so that's good. She got that. All right, who, who wrote that book? Solomon, yes. Solomon wrote that book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
All right, Ecclesiastes 1, this is going to set up, kind of just get us moving into part one tonight, and we'll do part two next week. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18. It's important what we read here and how it's written, especially in light of what we talked about for the last two weeks about the big three, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge more than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. You see that phrase repeated over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 18, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief, to increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Now was a a young person, and, and I was in a Bible study. I was a, a new devoted follower of Christ, and the youth pastor at the church that I was attending had a, a Bible study that I was going to. And when we got to the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, all right, I want everybody to take out your pen. I want you to write this in your Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible, just so you know. You write in your Bible. He said, I want you to put this right there. Don't try this at home. Right? So I wrote that right in the top of my, why did he tell us to write that in there? Because a lot of what we find in the Bible is given to us for what we're not supposed to do, just as much as it's in there for us what we are supposed to do. And so much of Ecclesiastes is a book that God has given to us so that we will not learn from his mistakes. And it's such a great tragedy because we know, right, you, you, you might know the story, that Solomon had an opportunity to pray and ask God for anything that he wanted. And what did he ask for? And not only did God give him wisdom, right, but he also gave him every other thing that most people ask for, which is success and riches and notoriety. But he also said, not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you so much wisdom that nobody else on this earth will ever be and surpass the wisdom that I give to you. So he's the one that gives us, right, the book of Proverbs. So how is it that a person who wrote Proverbs could be the person that lived out Ecclesiastes, right? It's because it's a person who did not live up to the truth that they knew. It's a person that did not live up to what they believed to be true. And the book of Ecclesiastes is the book written by a person, written by a person who at some point in his life gave himself over fully to all three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. God did not include Ecclesiastes in the Bible because he agrees with all of Solomon's conclusions, but so that we can learn from his mistakes. Who here knows what the word Ecclesiastes means? Anybody? Anybody know what it means? Stand? It means teacher. Ecclesia. It comes from the Greek word that means the church. And so Ecclesiastes means the one who speaks to the church. Teacher or preacher. The one who addresses the crowd. Right? You would not want to go to a church of a preacher, right, who Ecclesiastes is their message week after week. It's hopeless. Doesn't matter whether or not you do good or you do bad. You're all going to die anyways. Doesn't matter whether you try hard, God's going to treat you all the same. In fact, if he even pays attention to you at all, it just doesn't matter. In the end, we're all just going to rot in the ground and the worms are going to eat our flesh. Yep. Children are crying. The visitors are scurrying out the back door. But yet, that's, that was his conclusion, that we are doomed in this life. It's one of the greatest tragedies recorded for us in human history is a man who lost his hope in God. 
This was his conclusion. And the first part of his conclusion is absolutely right, which sets up our whole conversation about worship, is that you are desperate for meaning. And it's true. You're desperate for meaning. I'm desperate for meaning. Every single one of us wake up in our lives and there is an ache and a hunger inside of us to know the answer to the question, why am I here? What is my purpose for being here? And that's a, a great mark in maturity. Oftentimes in adolescence, people begin to come to that question. They begin to ask the question, I know that I'm here not just to play, but there is a purpose for me and I must know what that is. There, we are desperate for meaning, the feeling of meaning, the answer to the question of the meaning of life. And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes, this, this is what he says. Yeah, you are desperate for meaning, but I hate to be the one to tell you you're doomed to a life where meaning is impossible. It's a terrible plight to live in, isn't it? To know that you're desperate for something, but then to believe that it's impossible that you could ever have it. But I'm telling you, you and I are surrounded by people every day of our life, and this is the lie that they live under. That the devil's been whispering in their ear from the day that they were born. Unfortunately for some people, it's what their parents have spoken over them all during their lives. Come on, we want to be a church that goes out into the world and gives them the answer to this question. And we also want to give them the proclamation and the declaration that God speaks over their life, which is very different from what Solomon's conclusion is. Because this is what the rest of Scripture tells us. Yeah, you are desperate for meaning and are destined, not doomed, destined not to a life, but for a life, which means that you have a lot to do about whether or not it's going to happen, right? This idea of doomed to a life, he was fatalistic. He was saying there's nothing you can do to change the outcome. But we know the rest of the Scripture says, no, you're destined for life. There's a lot that God's going to do that you don't earn. That's what grace is about. But there's a lot over here, which is why our vision statement as a church is heaven now and heaven forever. If you're going to experience heaven on earth, it has so much to do with the choices that you make every day of your life. You are destined for a life where meaning overflows in worship. God says, hey, I understand that you're desperate for meaning because I made you that way. And then this book lays out, it's kind of a fill-in-the-blank statement. It overflows in worship, it overflows in many other things, but we know there is something unique about meaning that we experience. The greatest sense of meaning that you will ever experience in this life will not come from what you do, it will come from who you worship. The greatest sense of meaning that you will ever feel in here, that aching inside of you, the, the greatest moments where that is satisfied will not come from what you do. There is a measure of meaning that comes through what you do, but your greatest sense of meaning will come from who you worship. And you might say, well, how do you know that? I'm glad you asked that question. Come on. It's right here. If you've got your Bibles, let's read Revelation chapter 4. Oh, I love this chapter in the Bible. Come on. This is John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there. He's probably in his late 90s. He's toward the end of his life. He's been exiled here because of his faith in Christ. See, so he has this incredible vision, and chapter 4 continues that vision for us. It says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. And the first voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. 
And, and there in heaven, a throne was set. So he's having a vision. That's what mean being in the spirit means. It means he's, he's, he's physically present on the earth, but he's having this vision of eternity. That the, Kind of the veil that, that separates this temporal realm from the eternal realm that we're immersed in was kind of pulled back from him for a moment to allow him to see into the other realm. And there in heaven, a throne was set, and one was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone, which is like a, a translucent reddish-colored gem, and a rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 other thrones. So there's a throne in the middle, and then it was surrounded by 24 other thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and thunder and burning before the throne were seven fiery tor torches, which were the seven spirits of God. It doesn't mean that there's seven different gods, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, uh, an apocalyptic text, which is a lot of symbolism in here. And that just, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And the seven spirits, these seven lamps, represents the fullness and the completeness of who God is, meaning that he can meet every need that you have. You don't need any other God except him. Verse 6, also before the throne was something like a sea of glass similar to crystal. Listen to what it says. In the middle and around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in the front and the back. And the first living creature was like a lion. And the second living creature was like a calf. And the third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was that of a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings. There were two that they used to cover their eyes and around their side and, and then two that they used to fly. And day and night, listen to what, day and night, they never, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, speaking to the eternal nature of who God is. Verse nine, and whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then, right? So the, the four creatures, they have the song that they sing, and every time they say this short little song, all the 24 elders that are surrounded the throne, then they move into action. They fall down before the one seated on the throne. Worship the one who lives forever and ever. Cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And because of your will, they exist and were created. I like what the King James says, And for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's a powerful scene, isn't it? So many times during our worship set, I just, I stop singing the song that's on the screen and I start singing those just to myself. There's just a part of me that says, I don't want to get to heaven before my time, but there's moments in life where I just want to join in with the singing that's happening there. I'm just telling you, in, your, in, in our worship sets, there's just times where I'm just, I'm, it, it, I'm clapping and moving, I'm not to the beat because I'm really not good at that, but as best I can, right? Just say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I just imagine myself being in the midst of that scene, and I'm just telling you, there's something of meaning and purpose that floods the very essence of who I am every time it happens. And it might be that, that you're here tonight and, and, and you're thinking, wow, that's an incredible picture. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never been in a worship service like this before and you felt something like that. Or it might be that you're here tonight and you are thinking what many of us have thought before. 
How incredible is that going to be? What if, what if somehow we could sneak in there? We know what kind of costumes they're wearing, right? We can find a white robe and make this full crown. What if we can sneak into that place and just kind of get in there and be a part of that just for a moment? How incredible would that be? But it might be that you're thinking, hey, that would be incredible maybe for the first 10,000 years. But what about on day 10,822 at lunchtime? Some of you might be in that scene and go, could we just change things up a little bit, maybe? I'm just saying. Maybe we could break out into small groups and talk to each other. and Maybe somebody could maybe read out of the scriptures. I'm just saying, I'm just, I know, I know, I've only been here for 10,000 years, and you've been here for, right, millions, but, but I'm just at, is, could we just change it up? Because this is what we did yesterday. And the day before that. We've talked about this before. There's this incredible verse in Revelation 21 where it says, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. There's a principle that operates in heaven that does not operate here because we're subject to the laws of this universe, and one of them is the law of diminishing marginal returns, but that doesn't exist in heaven. So you could do that for millions of years, and it will be just as fresh as it was the first time that it ever happened because God's glory is just that great. God's glory is just that grand. God's glory is just that absolutely amazing. And, and one of the things that we find in this text, I believe what God is saying to us is that there is a place of meaning. There is a sense of purpose that you will have when you step into a place of abandoning yourself in worship in a crowd of other people who are abandoning themselves in a place of worship that, that is like nothing else. And he says to us, just give it a try and see if it'll happen. Just, just try it and see. I am telling you that ache inside of you for meeting, it will just be like you're standing in a waterfall of purpose and it will just cause the cup of your life to run over. And it's good. All right, let's dig into this one a little bit. So, so, so why is it? We're hearing this. We, we, many of you, you believe it's true, and some of you are thinking, I, I can't wait to experience that moment. And, and, but yet when the moment comes, you don't enter in. When the moment comes, you, you do what Stephanie was talking about, right? She didn't know what we were preaching. I, I was so excited when she was talking to me about what she was going to share. I was like, come on, you've got it. That's so good. We, we shrink back. We shrink back in those times. And it breaks God's heart because he knows what's waiting for us. If we'll just give ourselves to that place of worship, there's a sense of meaning that, that he will just flood our soul with, and he can't wait to give us that. And so, so, so I think one of the reasons why people draw back when they should be pressing in is because of this very idea of God watching. Now, we know that God is watching. We, we, even if you've not spent time in the Bible, many of you probably walked in here tonight with the belief that God is always watching, that he's everywhere all the time, and he sees everything. And as we read through scriptures, we, we see this played out for us. Hebrews 4.13, there's here just a few of them. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is naked and, and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. And Proverbs 5.21 says, The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. That's important to us because it says he doesn't just see it and not think about it, but it says he's watching you and he's thinking about what you're doing. He's considering it. He has a response to it. Proverbs 15.3 says that God's eyes are everywhere. It's part of what makes him divine. 
His eyes are everywhere. And then it says he sees both the good and the evil. He just sees it all. And, and, and sometimes that's liberating to us, but there's other times where it's frightening. There's other times that it's frightening. And I think maybe for some of you here tonight, this is going to be the, your path towards a breakthrough and, and just finding a place of freedom and a place of worship is because that you're kind of living under the myth and under the lie that maybe the devil's been whispering in your ear. God has been watching everything that you've been doing and he's angry at you. He sees what you did earlier today and he's not happy with you. And so we step into places of worship and we shrink back because we're afraid that the one that we're desperate for to give us the meaning, even if we don't understand the principle, something intuitively inside of us, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he's put eternity in our hearts. Something inside of us resonates with truth even before we realize that it's true. Something inside of us in those places of worship long to be the one. We look around the room, we see other people just so free in worship, and we say, I want so much to be that person because I know there's a place of meaning that I'm going to experience, but when I get there, he's not going to treat me the the same way that he's treating these people over here because, because I'm sure they've been doing everything right and I've been doing everything wrong and he accepts them but he's going to reject me and we just can't, we just can't, we just can't deal with the thought of being rejected by the creator of the universe, the one who says that he's a father to us. And so we shrink back and we don't enter in. So it was in the summer of 1990 that I was 23 years old, and, and I was attending the church with my parents. I had moved back home. I was trying to save money for, for graduate school. I graduated from college in, in 89, and so I had moved back in with my parents. And, and, and so I'm going to church out of respect with them. I'd be up all night partying, and, and I would, I would you know, roll into church. But I would always go to church late because it was a church much like this, and I, and I just didn't want to be in the worship part of the service because I just felt naked before God. Because I knew that he had seen all the things that I had been doing the night before. And something inside of me was afraid that he was going to reject me. And so I had it worked out. I kind of knew the, the schedule that they had been there enough times. to. That's why we switch it up on you sometimes here at the City Life Church. So you can't figure us out, right? So they hadn't had that revelation yet. And so they, they, they had it ordered, right? They, and and so, so I knew when to come in so that, so that I could step in just at the last song. So people thought I'd been there the whole time. And then just sit down and move forward with the rest of the service, right? But even in that last song, sometimes I would just break out in this terrible sweat. Just, just sweat pouring, right? People think, oh, that poor guy has a sweating problem. Now, I had a sin problem. And sin makes you sweat. Because I just knew that God knew everything about me. And I was so afraid that he was going to turn me away. And I wanted so much in my heart to give myself fully to him but I just, couldn't, I just couldn't take the chance that he would say no to me. And so I just kept shrinking back. There's this great story in Luke chapter 5. There's this great story in Luke chapter 5. Oh, this is good. Come on. 
Let's begin in verse 1. It says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Genesaret, which is the same as the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats at the edge of the lake, and the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets, and he got into one of the boats. See, this is biblical, having a boat, being in a boat, it's of God, which belonged to Simon and asked him to put out a little from the land, and then he sat down and he was teaching the crowd from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And I'm telling you what Simon's thinking. It's the same thing that you and I would have been thinking. Jesus, it would have been nice to know that before we washed the nets, right? If you're the Messiah, you, you could have known that we've done all this work. The nets are ready to be put away, and now you want us to get them out again, Right? You read this text, right, it, and it says, but at your word, I'll let down your nets. As this, this, this is this great moment of obedience. I don't think that it is. I think that's him being a little sarcastic. You know, we've worked all night. We haven't caught anything, but at your word, I'll let them down. I'm going to have to wash them again, but what do you care? You ever have an attitude like that with God? Am I the only one, right? We hate the idea of his sovereignty, but we just don't understand why his sovereignty can't have a little bit better timing. So when they did this, right, they caught a great number of fish. We launched out into a story much like this in the beginning of the year, talking about a, a human effort in response to a sovereign command brings about a divine result. So we have human effort in response to a sovereign command. Now they're experiencing divine result. So they caught so many fish that their nets began to tear, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat, to come and help them. Come on, that would be a great text. I'm just thinking about right now for a sermon on being on a multi-church campus. I'm just saying. They came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now listen to what happens next. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me because I am a sinful man. It's the Greek word hamartolos, which means to miss the mark, which is born out of an archery term. It says, get away from me. So many of you, you've been in that same place, which is why it's in the story. Because God wants us to understand he knows exactly what that's like. He knows the inclination of our humanity. That God reveals his glory, just like he did earlier tonight. Just like he's going to do again in this song that we're gonna, about to sing together. Just like he did 2,000 years ago. And something inside of us, instead of pressing in, we shrink back because we know who we are and we know God knows who we are and we're just afraid that he's going to send us away. And we leave with the same ache and desperation for meaning that we came with and if we live our lives shrinking back, we're going to end up like Solomon in Ecclesiastes' existence where we understand that we're desperate for meaning, but we live our lives believing that we're doomed to an existence where meaning is impossible. But then we come to moments like this and moments just like this that we're having right now in this moment, come on, where all of a sudden the rest of God's word comes alive to us and begins to say something in the other ear. You are desperate for meaning. And you are destined for a life. If you only take some steps, come on. You're destined for a life. For a life. Where meaning can just overflow. It can overflow in places of worship. Are you okay with him watching from afar? But afraid when he's close? 
Fearing there's the opportunity for him to reject you, there is a sense of meaning that floods our lives when we find his loving acceptance in a place of worship. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I want to read this psalm to you. Come on, is your heart aching for meeting tonight? This is Psalm 51. Verse 10, God created me a clean heart. Created me a clean heart. And renew a a right spirit within me. And listen to what he says next. It's, It's fascinating. Do not banish me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. David suffered from it. Peter suffered from it. You and I suffer from it. We're so afraid that he's going to say, go away. But come on, we want to be a church that has a message to you tonight. We want to be a church that has a message to this region that says God is never going to send you away. He only has one word that he says to you, and that word is come. And he doesn't care what you've been doing. He doesn't care what you've thought about doing after the service. He doesn't care about the story of your past or the dream of debauchery that you've had for your tomorrows and your future. He says, if you will come to me and abandon yourself in a moment of worship, I will flood your life with meaning. Come on, let's drink deep of it together now. just 